good morning, good afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to Stories of Your and Yours. My name is Sean Ennis, and today I will be your guide as we explore the histories and backgrounds of creatures you probably thought you already understood. Let's kick off this episode the way we always do, with the iTunes review. What More Can Be Said by Ghost Lyric If you are not listening to this immaculately produced show, you are truly missing out. Sean magically brings back stories from days past and shares them alongside new content from well-known and independent writers alike. His storytelling is perfection, his voice clear, articulate, and amazingly well-suited to the media. He is forever mixing up genres and styles, and they are always great listens. He never disappoints. If you miss or missed the days of radio drama, he's brought it back for you, only better. I love each show and eagerly await the next. Thank you very much to Ghost Lyric for such a kind review, and to answer the question in the title, well, lots more can be said. In fact, this is the 10th episode of season 2, and there are but 3 episodes left in this season after today. As of now, there are two reviews that haven't been read on the show yet, so if you enjoy the show and you want to help out, go ahead and leave that iTunes review, and I will read it on the show, like always. You can also get in touch with the show on social media, whether that's on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, at SYYpodcast. You can contact me through any of those methods, or through SYYpodcast at gmail.com, with requests, or with your own original short story. I enjoy talking with everybody, so drop by and say hello. Now, as I mentioned earlier, we are nearing the end of Season 2, but that doesn't mean that you have to go without your stories. I am very fortunate indeed to have very generous supporters who have signed up over on patreon.com slash syypodcast to help support the show financially, and I appreciate those patrons immensely. Dan from Netflix and Swill, Kayla from Get Grim and That's My Story and I'm Sticking to It, Nick from The Epic Film Guys, and Stacy, thank you so, so, so much. But I must say, those patrons are lonely over there. And as of now, they'll be the only ones getting bonus content throughout the off-season. If you want to get in on that action, head over to Patreon and sign up. Patrons of all levels get the bonus off-season content. And just so that we can make this a little more interesting, anyone who signs up to be a patron between now and May 29th, which is the end of Season 2, will receive all of the merchandise that I'm producing. Now, Typically, at the $2 level, you get laptop stickers. At the $5 level, you get magnets. And at the $10 level, you get bookmarks. But if you sign up before the end of the season, again, that's May 29th, you'll get it all. If you want to take a look at that merch, you can do so on any of the social media pages. And if that's not enough for you, if we reach 15 patrons by the end of the season, and that's just 11 more than are signed up right now, I will do at least one live reading between season 2 and 3. I'll stream it live from the Patreon page, and it'll be available to stream thereafter. Now, the only reason I don't commit to doing more than one live reading is because I haven't done one yet, and I want to make sure it's not a disaster. I'll be doing a live reading on the live stream for The Cure, May 19th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, or sorry, May 18th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time, so you'll get an idea there, but it's also a little bit more constrained than what I can do with no time limits on the Patreon. And if it goes well and people enjoy it, I'll do it more. And by the way, patrons, if there's anything you want to hear, either in the bonus episodes or on a live reading, please let me know. I am, of course, happy to pick the stories by myself if there are no preferences, but if you do have those requests, I would love to hear them. Now, let's move on to this week's stories. This week, we will be returning to the just-so stories of Rudyard Kipling. 
Way back in episode 8 of season 1, we featured the cat that walked by himself, which has gone on to become, as of right now, the most downloaded episode of the show thus far. So it only made sense to return to the Just So stories, especially because they're so much fun to narrate. I gave a brief history of Rudyard Kipling back in that episode, but I'll touch on a few more notes before getting started today. And unfortunately, not a lot of it is good news. Kipling's life was touched by tragedy more than once when it came to his children. As mentioned in episode 8, the Just So stories came about because he would tell these origin stories to his daughter Josephine, who insisted they be told exactly the same way every time, or in her words, just so. Unfortunately, Josephine contracted pneumonia and died at the age of just six years old, three years before the Just So stories were published in a volume together. His son, John Kipling, also died early, though his death came in 1915, shortly after his 18th birthday. John was killed while fighting in the Battle of Luz for the British Army in World War I. The poem My Boy Jack, which Kipling wrote as a tribute to 16-year-old Jack Cornwell, who also died in World War I, echoes Kipling's grief for his own lost son. Kipling's only child to survive into adulthood was his daughter Elsie. On a bit of a lighter note, another thing I didn't mention in the last episode was that Kipling was a Nobel laureate. He won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1907 after being nominated by Oxford professor Charles Oman. Those are just a few extra tidbits that I didn't get to the first time around. After listening back to that episode, I realized that the bios may have gotten a little bit longer as we've gone on, but hopefully not unpleasantly so. Now moving on, I've got four stories for you today. In order, they'll be How the Whale Got His Throat, How the Camel Got His Hump, How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin, and The Elephant's Child. I had a lot of fun recording these stories, animal voices are always a good time, and I gave the history of the Just So stories back in episode 8, but I do want to go over just a little bit of terminology before we get started here. Now remember, in addition to the terminology, that these stories are told by a narrator who is speaking to a child, so that's the reason for the tone of the stories. The first word that you'll hear that I wasn't familiar with anyway was sloka, which is a Sanskrit word meaning song or verse. Then, in the story of the camel, you'll hear about a jinn, which you may be familiar with, and that is a word that has its roots in Arabic mythology and essentially means a genie, or at least that's the most commonly used uh, meaning for that word. It could also be used to mean a demon or a spirit. And finally, in the elephant's child, you'll hear the word satiable, which doesn't come across quite as clear in audio as it does in print, because the word is actually insatiable. In the print version, the word is abbreviated by an apostrophe. So when you hear about the elephant's satiable curiosity in The Elephant's Child, it's actually referring to his insatiable curiosity. I wanted to make sure to bring that up because that's a little bit confusing if you don't know what's going on there. So, with that background and a few extra notes, let's move on to this week's presentation. How the Whale Got His Throat by Rudyard Kipling in the sea, once upon a time, O oh my best beloved, there was a whale, and he ate fishes. He ate the starfish and the garfish, and the crab and the dab, and the place and the dace, and the skate and his mate, and all the mackerel and pickerel, and the really truly twirly whirly eel. All the fishes he could find in the sea he ate with his mouth, so, till at last there was only one small fish left in all the sea, and he was a small stute fish and he swam a little behind the whale's right ear, so as to be out of harm's way. Then the whale stood up on his tail and said, I'm hungry. And the small stute fish said in a small stute voice, Noble and generous cetacean, have you ever tasted man? 
No, said the whale. What is it like? Nice, said the small stewed fish. Nice and nubbly. Then fetch me some, said the whale, and he made the sea froth up with his tail. One at a time is enough, said the stewed fish. If you swim to latitude 50 north, longitude 40 west, that is magic, you will find, sitting on a raft, in the middle of the sea, with nothing on but a pair of blue canvas breeches, a pair of suspenders, you must not forget the suspenders, best beloved, and a jackknife, one shipwrecked mariner who, it is only fair to tell you, is a man of infinite resource and sagacity. So the whale swam and swam to latitude 50 north, longitude 40 west, as fast as he could swim, and on a raft, in the middle of the sea, with nothing to wear except a pair of blue canvas breeches, a pair of suspenders, you must particularly remember these suspenders, best beloved, and a jackknife, he found one single solitary shipwrecked mariner, trailing his toes in the water. He had his mummy's leave to paddle, or else he would never have done it, because he was a man of infinite resource and sagacity. Then the whale opened his mouth back and back and back, till it nearly touched his tail, and he swallowed the shipwrecked mariner, and the raft he was sitting on, and his blue canvas breeches, and the suspenders, which you must not forget, and the jackknife. He swallowed them all down into his warm, dark inside cupboards, and then he smacked his lips so, and turned round three times on his tail. But as soon as the mariner, who was a man of infinite resource and sagacity, found himself truly inside the whale's warm, dark inside cupboards, he stumped and he jumped and he thumped and he bumped and he pranced and he danced and he banged and he clanged and he hit and he bit and he leaped and he creeped and he prowled and he howled and he hopped and he dropped and he cried and he sighed he crawled and he bawled he stepped and he leapt and he danced hornpipes where he shouldn't and the whale felt most unhappy indeed have you forgotten the suspenders so he said to the stutefish, This man is very nubbly, and besides he is making me hiccup. What shall I do? Tell him to come out, said the stutefish. So the whale called down his own throat to the shipwrecked mariner, Come out and behave yourself. I've got the hiccups. Nay, nay, said the mariner. Not so, but far otherwise. Take me to my natal shore and the white cliffs of Albion, and I'll think about it. And he began to dance more than ever. You had better take him home, said the stutefish to the whale. I ought to have warned you that he is a man of infinite resource and sagacity. So the whale swam and swam and swam with both flippers and his tail as hard as he could for the hiccups. And at last he saw the mariner's natal shore and the white cliffs of Albion, and he rushed halfway up the beach, and opened his mouth wide and wide and wide, and said, Change here for Winchester, Ashulot, Nashua, Keene, and the stations on the Flitchburg Road. And just as he said, Flitch, the mariner walked out of his mouth. But while the whale had been swimming, the mariner, who was indeed a person of infinite resource and sagacity, had taken his jackknife and cut up the raft into a little square grating all running crisscross, and had tied it firm with his suspenders. Now you know why you were not to forget the suspenders. And he dragged that grating good and tight into the whale's throat, and there it stuck. Then he recited the following sloka. 
which, as you have not heard it, I will now proceed to relate. By means of a grating I have stopped your aiding, for the mariner he was also a Hibernian, and he stepped out on the shingle, and went home to his mother, who had given him leave to trail his toes in the water, and he married and lived happily ever afterward. So did the whale. But from that day on, the grating in his throat, which he could neither cough up nor swallow down, prevented him eating anything except very, very small fish, and that is the reason why whales nowadays never eat men or boys or little girls. The small stutefish went and hid himself in the mud under the door sills of the equator. He was afraid that the whale might be angry with him. The sailor took the jackknife home. He was wearing the blue canvas breeches when he walked out on the shingle. The suspenders were left behind, you see, to tie the grating with. And that is the end of that tale. How the Camel Got His Hump Now this is the next tale, and it tells how the camel got his big hump. In the beginning of years, when the world was so new and all, and the animals were just beginning to work for man, there was a camel, and he lived in the middle of a howling desert, because he did not want to work, and besides, he was a howler himself. So he ate sticks and thorns and tamarisks and milkweed and prickles, most excruciating idle, and when anybody spoke to him, he said, Humph! Just humph, and no more. Presently the horse came to him on a Monday morning, with a saddle on his back and a bit in his mouth, and said, Camel! Oh, Camel! Come out and trot like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the horse went away and told the man. Presently the dog came to him, with a stick in his mouth, and said, Camel, oh camel, come and fetch and carry like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the dog went away and told the man. Presently the ox came to him, with a yoke on his neck, and said, Camel, oh camel, come and plow like the rest of us. Humph, said the camel, and the ox went away and told the man. At the end of the day the man called the horse and the dog and the ox together, and said, Three, oh three, I'm very sorry for you, with the world so new and all, but that humph thing in the desert can't work, or he would have been here by now, so I'm going to leave him alone, and you must work double time to make up for it. That made the three very angry, with the world so new and all, and they held a palaver, and an indaba, and a punchayat, and a powwow on the edge of the desert, and the camel came chewing on milkweed, most excruciating idle, and laughed at them, and he said, Humph, and went away again. Presently there came along the jinn, in charge of all deserts, rolling in a cloud of dust. Jinns always travel that way because it is magic. And he stopped to palaver and powwow with the three. Jinn of all the deserts, said the horse, is it right for any one to be idle, with the world so new and all? Certainly not, said the jinn. Well, said the horse, there's a thing in the middle of your howling desert, and he's a howler himself, with a long neck and long legs, and he hasn't done a stroke of work since Monday morning. He won't trot. <whistles> said the jinn, whistling. That's my camel for all the gold in Arabia. What does he say about it? He says, Humph, said the dog, and he won't fetch and carry. Does he say anything else? Only Humph, and he won't plow, said the ox. Very good, said the jinn. I'll Humph him, if you will kindly wait a minute. 
the djinn rolled himself up in his dust cloak and took a bearing across the desert and found the camel most scruciating idol looking at his own reflection in a pool of water. My long and bubbling friend, said the djinn, what is this I hear of your doing no work with the world so new and all? Humph, said the camel. The djinn sat down with his chin in his hand and began to think a great magic while the camel looked at his own reflection in the pool of water. You've given the three extra work ever since Monday morning, all on account of your excruciating idleness, said the djinn, and he went on thinking magics with his chin in his hand. Humph, said the camel. I shouldn't say that again if I were you, said the djinn. You might say it once too often. Bubbles, I want you to work. And the camel said humph again, but no sooner had he said it than he saw his back, that he was so proud of, puffing up and puffing up into a great big lolloping humph. Do you see that? said the djinn. That's your very own humph that you've brought upon your very own self by not working. Today is Thursday and you've done no work since Monday when the work began. Now you are going to work. How can I? said the camel, with this humph on my back. That's made a purpose, said the djinn. All because you missed those three days. You will be able to work now for three days without eating, because you can live on your humph. And don't you ever say I never did anything for you. Come out of the desert and go to the three, and behave. Humph yourself. And the camel humphed himself, humph and all, and went away to join the three. And from that day to this, the camel always wears a humph, we call it a hump now, not to hurt his feelings. But he has never yet caught up with the three days that he missed at the beginning of the world, and he has never yet learned how to behave. How the Rhinoceros Got His Skin Once upon a time, on an uninhabited island on the shores of the Red Sea, there lived a Parsee, from whose hat the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendor. And the Parsee lived by the Red Sea with nothing but his hat and his knife, and a cooking stove of the kind that you must particularly never touch. And one day he took flour and water and currants and plums and sugar and things, and made himself one cake, which was two feet across and three feet thick. It was indeed a superior comestible, that's magic, and he put it on stove because he was allowed to cook on stove, and he baked it and he baked it till it was all done brown and smelt most sentimental. But just as he was going to eat it, there came down to the beach from the altogether uninhabited interior one rhinoceros with a horn on his nose, two piggy eyes, and few manners. In those days the rhinoceros's skin fitted him quite tight. There was no wrinkles in it anywhere. He looked exactly like a Noah's Ark rhinoceros, but of course much bigger. All the same, he had no manners then, and he has no manners now, and he never will have any manners. He said, How? And the Parsee left that cake and climbed to the top of a palm tree, with nothing on but his hat, from which the rays of the sun were always reflected in more than oriental splendor. And the rhinoceros upset the oil stove with his nose, and the cake rolled on the sand, and he spiked that cake on the horn of his nose, and he ate it, and he went away, waving his tail, to the desolate and exclusively uninhabited interior, which abuts on the islands of Mazandaran, Socotra, and the promontories of the larger equinox. 
Then the Parsee came down from his palm tree and put the stove on its legs and recited the following sloka, which, as you have not heard, I will now proceed to relate. Them that takes cakes, which the Parsee man bakes, makes dreadful mistakes. And there was a great deal more in that than you would think. Because, five weeks later, there was a heat wave in the Red Sea, and everybody took off all the clothes they had. The Parsee took off his hat, but the rhinoceros took off his skin, and carried it over his shoulder as he came down to the beach to bathe. In those days it buttoned underneath with three buttons, and looked like a waterproof. He said nothing whatever about the Parsee's cake, because he had eaten it all, and he never had any manners, then, since, or henceforward. He waddled straight into the water and blew bubbles through his nose, leaving his skin on the beach. Presently the Parsee came by and found the skin, and he smiled one smile that ran all round his face two times. Then he danced three times round the skin and rubbed his hands. <laughs> then he went to his camp and filled his hat with cake crumbs, for the Parsee never ate anything but cake, and never swept out his camp. He took that skin, and he shook that skin, and he scrubbed that skin, and he rubbed that skin just as full of old, dry, stale, tickly cake crumbs and some burned currants as ever it could possibly hold. Then he climbed to the top of his palm tree, and waited for the rhinoceros to come out of the water, and put it on. And the rhinoceros did. He buttoned it up with the three buttons, and it tickled like cake crumbs in bed. Then he wanted to scratch, but that made it worse. And then he lay down on the sands and rolled and rolled and rolled, and every time he rolled the cake crumbs tickled him worse and worse and worse. Then he ran to the palm tree and rubbed and rubbed and rubbed himself against it. He rubbed so much and so hard that he rubbed his skin into a great fold over his shoulders, and another fold underneath, where the buttons used to be, but he rubbed the buttons off. And he rubbed more folds over his legs, and it spoiled his temper but it didn't make the least difference to the cake crumbs. They were inside his skin, and they tickled. So he went home, very angry indeed, and horribly scratchy. And from that day to this, every rhinoceros has got great folds in his skin, and a very bad temper, all on account of the cake crumbs inside. But the Parsee came down from his palm tree, wearing his hat from which the rays of the sun were reflected in more than oriental splendor, packed up his cooking stove, and went away in the direction of Orotavo, Amygdala, the upland meadows of Anantarivo, and the marshes of Sanaput. The Elephant's Child In the high and far-off times, the elephant, O oh best beloved, had no trunk. He had only a blackish, bulgy nose, as big as a boot, that he could wriggle about from side to side but he couldn't pick up things with it. But there was one elephant, a new elephant, an elephant's child, who was full of satiable curiosity. And that means he asked ever so many questions. And he lived in Africa, and he filled all Africa with his satiable curiosities. He asked his tall aunt, the ostrich, why her tail feathers grew just so, and his tall aunt, the ostrich, spanked him with her hard, hard claw. Then he asked his tall uncle, the giraffe, what made his skin spotty, and his tall uncle the giraffe spanked him with his hard, hard hoof. And still he was full of satiable curiosity. He asked his broad aunt, the hippopotamus, why her eyes were red, and his broad aunt, the hippopotamus, spanked him with her broad, broad hoof. And he asked his hairy uncle, the baboon, why melons tasted just so, and his hairy uncle, the baboon, spanked him with his hairy, hairy paw. 
and still he was full of satiable curiosity. He asked questions about everything he saw, or heard, or felt, or smelt, or touched, and all his uncles and aunts spanked him. And still he was full of satiable curiosity. One fine morning, in the middle of the procession of equinoxes, this satiable elephant's child asked a new fine question that he had never asked before. He asked, "'What does the crocodile have for dinner?' Then everybody said, "'Hush!' in a loud and dreadful tone, and they spanked him immediately and directly, without stopping, for a long time. By and by, when that was finished, he came upon Colo Colo Bird, sitting in the middle of a wait-a-bit thorn-bush, and he said, "'My father has spanked me, and my mother has spanked me, and all my aunts and uncles have spanked me for my satiable curiosity, and I still want to know what the crocodile has for dinner.' Then Colo Colo Bird said with a mournful cry, Go to the banks of the great gray-green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees, and find out. That very next morning, when there was nothing left of the equinoxes because the procession had proceeded according to the president, this satiable elephant's child took a hundred pounds of bananas, the little short red kind, and a hundred pounds of sugar-cane, the long purple kind, and seventeen melons, the greeny crackly kind, and said to his dear families, Goodbye, I am going to the great gray-green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees, to find out what the crocodile has for dinner. And they all spanked him once more for luck, though he asked them most politely to stop. Then he went away, a little warm, but not at all astonished, eating melons and throwing the rind about because he could not pick it up. He went from Grahamstown to Kimberley, and from Kimberley to Kama's country, and from Kama's country he went east by north, eating melons all the time, till at last he came to the banks of this great gray-green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees, precisely as Colo Colo Bird had said. Now you must know and understand, O best beloved, that till that very week, and day, and hour, and minute, this satiable elephant's child had never seen a crocodile, and did not know what one was like. It was all his satiable curiosity. The first thing that he found was a bicolored python rock snake curled round a rock. Excuse me, said the elephant's child most politely, but have you seen such a thing as a crocodile in these promiscuous parts? Have I seen a crocodile? said the bicolored python rock snake in a voice of dreadful scorn. What will you ask me next? Excuse me, said the elephant's child, but could you kindly tell me what he has for dinner? Then the bi-colored python rock snake uncoiled himself very quickly from the rock and spanked the elephant's child with his scalesome, flailsome tail. That is odd, said the elephant's child, because my father and my mother and my uncle and my aunt, not to mention my other aunt, the hippopotamus, and my other uncle, the baboon, have all spanked me for my satiable curiosity, and I suppose this is the same thing. So he said good-bye very politely to the bicolored python rock snake, and helped to coil him up on the rock again, and went on a little warm, but not at all astonished, eating melons and throwing the rind about because he could not pick it up, till he trod on what he thought was a log of wood at the very edge of the great gray-green Gracie Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees. But it was really the crocodile, O oh best beloved, and the crocodile winked one eye like this. "'Excuse me,' said the elephant's child most politely, but do you happen to have seen a crocodile in these promiscuous parts? Then the crocodile winked the other eye and lifted half his tail out of the mud, and the elephant's child stepped back most politely because he did not wish to be spanked again. Come hither, little one, 
said the crocodile. Why do you ask such things? Excuse me, said the elephant's child, most politely, but my father has spanked me, my mother has spanked me, not to mention my tall aunt, the ostrich, and my tall uncle, the giraffe, who can kick ever so hard, as well as my broad aunt, the hippopotamus, and my hairy uncle, the baboon, and including the bicolored python rock snake with the scalesome, flailsome tail just up the bank, who spanks harder than any of them. And so, if it's all quite the same to you, I don't want to be spanked any more. Come hither, little one, said the crocodile, for I am the crocodile. And he wept crocodile tears, to show it was quite true. Then the elephant's child grew all breathless, and panted, and kneeled down on the bank, and said, "'You are the very person I have been looking for all these long days. Will you please tell me what you have for dinner?' "'Come hither, little one,' said the crocodile, "'and I'll whisper.' Then the elephant's child put his head down close to the crocodile's musky, tusky mouth, and the crocodile caught him by his little nose, which up to that very week, day, hour, and minute had been no bigger than a boot, though much more useful. "'I think,' said the crocodile, and he said it between his teeth like this, "'I think today I will begin with the elephant's child.' At this, O oh best beloved, the elephant's child was much annoyed, and he said, speaking through his nose like this, Let go! You're hurting me! Then the bi-colored python rock snake scuffled down from the bank and said, My young friend, if you do not now immediately and instantly pull as hard as ever you can, it is my opinion that your acquaintance in the large patterned leather ulster and by this he met the crocodile, will jerk you into yonder limpid stream before you can say Jack Robinson. This is the way bicolored python rock snakes always talk. Then the elephant's child sat back on his little haunches and pulled and pulled and pulled, and his nose began to stretch, and the crocodile floundered into the water, making it all creamy with great sweeps of his tail, and he pulled and pulled and pulled and the elephant's child's nose kept on stretching, and the elephant's child spread all his little four legs and pulled and pulled and pulled, and his nose kept on stretching, and the crocodile threshed his tail like an oar, and he pulled and pulled and pulled, and at each pull the elephant's child's nose grew longer and longer, and it hurt him hegeous. Then the elephant's child felt his legs slipping, and he said through his nose, which was now nearly five feet long, This is too much for me! Then the bi-colored python rock snake came down from the bank and nodded himself in a double clove hitch round the elephant's child's hind legs and said, Rash and inexperienced traveler, we will now seriously devote ourselves to a little high tension, because if we do not, it is my impression that yonder self-propelling man-of-war with the armor-plated upper deck and by this, O oh best beloved, he meant the crocodile, will permanently vitiate your future career. That is the way all bicolored python rock snakes always talk. So he pulled, and the elephant's child pulled, and the crocodile pulled, but the elephant's child and the bicolored python rock snake pulled hardest, and at last the crocodile let go of the elephant's child nose with a plop that you could hear all up and down the limpopo. Then the elephant's child sat down most hard and sudden, but first he was careful to say thank you to the bicolored python rock snake, 
and next he was kind to his poor pulled nose, and wrapped it all up in cool banana leaves, and hung it in the great grey-green Gracie Limpopo to cool. "'What are you doing that for?' said the bicolored python rock-snake. "'Excuse me,' said the elephant's child, "'but my nose is badly out of shape, and I am waiting for it to shrink. "'Then you will have to wait a long time.' said the bicolored python rock-snake. Some people do not know what is good for them. The elephant's child sat there for three days, waiting for his nose to shrink, but it never grew any shorter, and besides it made him squint. For, O oh best beloved, you will see and understand that the crocodile had pulled it out into a really truly trunk, same as all elephants have today. At the end of the third day a fly came and stung him on the shoulder, and before he knew what he was doing, he lifted up his trunk and hit that fly dead with the end of it. Advantage number one, said the bicolored python rock snake. You couldn't have done that with a mere smear nose. Try and eat a little now. Before he thought what he was doing, the elephant's child put out his trunk and plucked a large bundle of grass, dusted it clean against his forelegs, and stuffed it into his own mouth. Advantage number two said the bicolored python rock-snake. You couldn't have done that with a mere smear-nose. Don't you think the sun is very hot here? It is, said the elephant's child, and before he thought what he was doing, he slooped up a sloop of mud from the banks of the great gray-green greasy Limpopo and slapped it on his head, where it made a cool, sloopy, sloshy mud cap all trickly behind his ears. Vantage number three, said the bicolored python rock snake. You couldn't have done that with a mere smear nose. Now, how do you feel about being spanked again? Excuse me, said the elephant's child, but I should not like it at all. How would you like to spank somebody? said the bicolored python rock snake. I should like it very much indeed said the elephant's child. Well, said the bicolored python rock snake, you will find that new nose of yours is very useful to spank people with. Thank you, said the elephant's child. I'll remember that, and now I think I'll go home to all my dear families and try. So the elephant's child went home across Africa, frisking and whisking his trunk. When he wanted fruit to eat, he pulled fruit down from a tree, instead of waiting for it to fall like he used to do. When he wanted grass, he plucked grass up from the ground, instead of going on his knees as he used to do. When the flies bit him, he broke off the branch of a tree and used it as a fly whisk, and made himself a new, cool, slushy, squishy mud cap whenever the sun was hot. When he felt lonely walking through Africa, he sang to himself down his trunk, and the noise was louder than several brass bands. He went especially out of his way to find a broad hippopotamus, she was of no relation of his, and he spanked her very hard to make sure that the bicolored python rock snake had spoken the truth about his new trunk. The rest of the time he picked up the melon rinds that he had dropped on his way to the Limpopo, for he was a tidy pachyderm. One dark evening he came back to all his dear families, and he coiled up his trunk and said, How do you do? They were very glad to see him, and immediately said, Come here and be spanked for your satiable curiosity. Pooh, said the elephant's child. I don't think you peoples know anything about spanking, but I do, and I'll show you. Then he uncurled his trunk, 
and knocked two of his dear brothers head over heels. Oh, bananas, said they. Where did you learn that trick, and what have you done to your nose? I got a new one from the crocodile on the banks of the great gray-green greasy Limpopo River, said the elephant's child. I asked him what he had for dinner, and he gave me this to keep. It looks very ugly, said his hairy uncle, the baboon. It does, said the elephant's child, but it's very useful. And he picked up his hairy uncle, the baboon, by one hairy leg and hove him into a hornet's nest. Then that bad elephant's child spanked all his dear families for a long time till they were very warm and greatly astonished. He pulled out his tall ostrich aunt's tail feathers, and he caught his tall uncle the giraffe by the hind leg and dragged him through a thorn bush, and he shouted at his broad aunt the hippopotamus and blew bubbles into her ear when she was sleeping in the water after meals. But he never let anyone touch Colo Colo Bird. At last, things grew so exciting that his dear families went off one by one in a hurry to the banks of the great gray-green greasy Limpopo River, all set about with fever trees, to borrow new noses from the crocodile. When they came back, nobody spanked anybody anymore, and ever since that day, O oh best beloved, all the elephants you will ever see, besides all those that you won't, have trunks precisely like the trunk of the satiable elephant's child. Now, we may not all be biologists here, but if you ask me, these origin stories sound just as plausible as anything else, right? Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Stories of Your and Yours, and if you did, I would love it if you spread the word and leave an iTunes review for me to read on the show. And remember, as I mentioned in the beginning of the episode, if you join up with the Patreon before May 29th, the end of Season 2, you'll receive all the merchandise that I produce, you'll get access to all the off-season content, and if we get 15 patrons before the end of Season 2, I'll do at least one live reading on the Patreon. If you've got a story to submit, or if you have a request for a short story, send that into syypodcast at gmail.com, or hit me up via the aforementioned social media handles. For a full list of sound effect and music credits, please visit syypodcast.libsyn.com slash blog. Now, next week, you'll hear from a familiar author who I featured before here on the show, but he's telling a story the likes of which you might not realize he ever wrote. Well, until then, this has been Stories of Your and Yours. I've been Sean Ennis. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 